millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. People come out of prison. It's a shock to the system. Their only coping strategy in many cases is to go back to the life they knew before they went into prison, which was a, lot, a dysfunctional life of crime and or drugs or, you know, uh, you know other forms of dysfunctional behaviour. Uh, so, so yeah, the Norwegian system is a really good model. And the way I see it is that, and I, the, 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 I advocate in the book for, let's go even further. Let's make prisons actually places of normality where people can live in conditions that are, I'm not, obviously not going to put them in luxury apartments, you know, on Park Lane, but you, but you make, you make the environment as natural as possible and as close as possible to real life. So they should be doing their own cooking. They should be doing their own washing. They should be independent in all of these things. Because if they're not, then how the hell do you expect them to be when they come out? Chris Dorr QC has had over 25 years of experience in the criminal law. He's a barrister, he's a QC, and he has written a very fascinating book, Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. So let's look at the criminal justice system. Let's hear from someone that's been on the front lines, someone that's defended numerous people, which we'll get into within this episode. So, yeah, we're joined by Chris Dorr, QC, and I think you'll find this is going to be rather fascinating. So let's talk about his book, Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST, in association with Leap UK, and here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, this is rather fascinating. What Chris Dorr QC doesn't know about the criminal justice system is not worth speaking about. His new book, which is on release now, is incredible. It's a fact-finding mission. It's on the ground. It's up close and personal with some of the most horrific tales you can imagine from the criminal justice system around the globe. We've got some stories to tell in this, so we're not going to hang around. Let's get straight on with this. We're going to speak to Chris Dorr QC. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you share this one, subscribe. And of course, you're going to want to read this book. You really will. So, so this, um, if it's all right with you, uh, a bit of an introduction of who you are sure. and what you do, because, I mean, your roles are just 
you know, the, the, the stuff that TV programs are made of. So if you can give And hopefully I'm, I'm in the middle of working on one of those as well. So uh, <laughs> I'll get to that as well. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, well, uh, Chris Dorr, QC, um, barrister, been practicing criminal law for over 25 years, uh, criminal defense, uh, defending in murder trials, armed robbery trials in my early days, and, and now sort of complex uh, fraud cases, serious fraud cases. I, I, I also get involved in kind of high-profile cases like the Hillsborough Inquests and the Hillsborough Criminal Case, which is the second of which is coming up next January uh, to do with the quote-unquote cover-up uh, as, as alleged. Um, and, and, you know, I've acted for England football captains and, you know, captains of industry and all sorts of kind of eclectic people, uh, you know, Russian oligarchs, I mean, you know, you name it. And, and, and if they've crossed the sort of the radar of the... Uh, of the authorities, uh, whether it be here or sometimes overseas, then I've probably come across someone of that kind. So it's a, it's a hugely kind of eclectic mix. But also, as you know from the book, I, I, I act for, you know, sometimes in, in cases which are much more sort of near to the ground in terms of the odd murder case, which is tied up in the, in the drug world or, um, you know, the, some of these sort of major drugs conspiracies and so on. So it's a, it's a very eclectic kind of uh, client base and it's a fascinating job. I, I, as I say to everybody uh, who asks, particularly students coming through saying, what should I do in legal practice? I, I personally think it's the most interesting job in the world. I, I, I'm sure there's lots of interesting jobs, but for me at least, I can't think of another one that would be as, as, as fascinating from a human interest point of view, from a drama point of view, as you say. The, the drama of a criminal trial is unbeatable. Um, and the verdict, the moment of the verdict is literally probably one of the most dramatic moments there is in, you know, in any occupation of any kind. You know, that the idea that the, the words of the juror, uh, of the of the chair, chair uh, of the foreman of the jury will determine whether your client goes home or, 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 or spends 10, 20 years or more in prison is, is remarkable. It's an incredible moment and, and it's not lost any of its... Uh, drama for me after all these years and dozens and dozens of verdicts I've been in court for so it's fascinating so yeah and, and I don't know if you want me to give a bit of a, a kind of an, an overview of some of the other stuff I do um I, I... Well, actually you, you've given me a really good lead there because I mean we're going to be speaking predominantly about your book uh justice justice on trial which is as I said to you before we start recording it is fantastic because you've managed to be, become a communicator within it and that's that's so I don't want to be patronising, but so rare to be able to do is someone working in such heavy fields as you do to get that across to every single person and every single acumen level. But you've given a, a really good lead in to, to what some of the book is about because you say about the, the theatre, the spectacle of, of, the, of the court, and it's something that you give a bit of a history of in the book. And, it, and I found that bit particularly fascinating right back to sort of Romans and Greeks. Absolutely. The drama of the trial back, back in ancient, ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome in particular. But yeah, it's always been, I suppose, because you're trying to persuade, in, in our case, we have 12 members of the public as the jury, and you're trying to persuade the same people who watch TV or who, you know, go and watch football matches and, 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 and get swayed by the drama and the emotion of kind of, of, of events and, and, and passions. And so, you know, if you're going to succeed in that world you have to have the ability to communicate in a way that, that, that will reach all 12 of those jurors, or at least sufficient of them to win the case. Um, 
So, you, you know, there's an element, undoubtedly, of the criminal trial. And, and there always has been, as you say, in the book, I talk about some of the really dramatic stuff. And, you know, I, in the book I talk about, I think it was in, in, uh, in, in, in ancient Greece, where, you know, they used to encourage everyone to dress up in sort of, you know, clothes and mourning clothes and look sad and kind of try and get sympathy vote for the defendant, you know. And, and, and to a degree, we, we, you know, we advise our clients, you know, dress like somberly. Don't come to court, you know, wearing a you know, like a track suit, come in a sort of plain dark navy suit and look like, you know, a serious person. And why should that make any difference when you think about it? It shouldn't make any difference, should it? What you look like or, you know, but the reality is that's how the world works. And, you know, uh, you have to, you have to, you have to persuade people through, you know, the force of argument, but also there's elements of presentation, which are definitely the same, have been the same throughout the ages and are exactly the same sort of, um, persuasive techniques that you get in uh, through politicians or, or through, um, through, through, through dramatic presentations and so on. So, yeah, I think, I think it's the, the, we would be lying if we said there's no drama about what we do. There definitely is. And, and the best of us hopefully can, can bring that dramatic quality to the benefit of our clients. And even when you're saying about the history of, of the court, you're saying that in, in years gone by, the, the fine line between being an actor and, yeah. uh, and theatre and being a an advocate like yeah. yourself the the line was really blurred wasn't it well and i think i think it, that's true it was true in the in in the ancient rome and ancient greece and the orators of ancient rome were were were, were renowned for their sort of theatrical presentation a very powerful kind of oratory and so on um but also back in the victorian era in England, uh, before TV, before radio, and so on, and where you only basically you had theatre, and that was the entertainment. But the courts became another branch of entertainment. You know, so the Old Bailey, for example, there would be queues of people to queue up for the big, high-profile murder cases, and it was a real cushy job to work at the Old Bailey because you could charge like people to get in. And it, and it was a bit of a scam, obviously, but but people there was so much demand for the seats in the in the in the theatrical kind of courts and and the and the QCs and the barristers of those, that era were 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 really kind of famous people, you know, and they 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 were they were they were celebrities, you know, and and people would would be desperate to see the closing speech of one of the big sort of famous advocates of the Victorian era, and I think there's less so that's less the case now. You get fewer and fewer individual lawyers who who have a have a name and in a, a public reputation for their advocacy i mean michael mansfield's a well-known kind of name over the last 30 years or so uh and george carman was 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 well known uh, again but i think that's perhaps less so the, now and perhaps that's because unlike in the victorian era there is so much entertainment available to people now there's netflix and so on and so maybe it's lost a little bit of its uh kind of appeal um but for me there is no substitute for for because the 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 one thing that a, a, a tv drama can't give you is that the stakes are real and that, and in a courtroom they're real it's not pretend and and someone's life is on the line both the witnesses or the victims of a crime or the family of of someone who's died uh, i mean I, I i did a murder trial at the old bailey actually it, it, it started as a murder trial but ended up as a manslaughter trial but but I ended up sitting next to the uh, mother of the deceased and I was defending the guy who'd killed her son. And there was no dispute, he killed her. It was a case of self-defense. He was 
pleading self-defense. And, and, and in one of these old courts, I think it was court six possibly at the, at the Bailey, it was one of these old courts where they have the domed ceilings and it's, and it's really spectacular. But, but the layout is, is a sort of Victorian layout. Everything's very cramped. And so I'm sitting you know, opposite the, the witness box where I stand up and ask my questions. And the lady, the mother of the, of the deceased, whose son had died in his, I think, early or mid-20s, was, was two feet away from me the whole way through. So that you can't, you know, that kind of dramatic kind of tension around, you know, particularly cases involving a death, whether it's murder or manslaughter or even some of these, you know, um, causing death by dangerous driving cases that, are, that can also be very, very emotional cases. Um, that it's real emotion. It's not manufactured. It's real. And, and there's an atmosphere and there's an electric feel to the room, which I don't think you duplicate in many other walks of life, really. So this is where this, this is one of those conversations. There's so many strings that I want to go down now. Uh, but firstly, on the point he was making about the theatre of it, um, and we have got Netflix, and you've done TV work yourself. So do you think this still we still have got that same fascination with with uh, Law and Order? Do you think it is still the same vein that we, we most of us get enthralled in some way or another, just not necessarily in the amphitheatre of where it's happening? No, that's true. I think. I think. Well, the 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 proof of the pudding is in the is in the is in the media, isn't it? So so when you read a newspaper, uh, in normal times, obviously the courts have been largely closed for for, for the last few months, and they're only just starting to re reopen. But in normal times, when the criminal courts are running at full capacity, uh, criminal cases take up maybe a quarter or a third of the of the home affairs or the current affairs uh, coverage in the newspaper whether it be big murder trials, terrorism cases, uh, the big financial crime and fraud investigations, a big case involving banks and so on, um, and the big frauds, you know, we had Barclays and various other kind of very big kind of criminal cases. Um, so th th undoubtedly there must be an interest in it because otherwise the newspapers wouldn't cover it so much. And they do cover, they cover criminal cases and, it, and some of them, the really horrific high profile cases, you know, going back to the, the Yorkshire Ripper in, in, in the 80s and then, you know, all of these sort of murder cases involving, you know, serial killers, um, uh, you know, Fred West and Rosemary West. So, so, so there's undoubtedly there's a fascination with serious crime, particularly, I think, murder cases and serial killers and the more kind of gruesome cases tend to get uh, tend to get a lot of coverage, don't they? Um, so, so I think there is there's an appetite for it. But I just when you go to court these days, um, you don't get many people in the public gallery and I, I, other than perhaps at the Old Bailey for some of these more high profile cases. So, uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I, I think there's still the appetite for it. There's still the fascination. Uh, it's just that I, th I mean, people are busy as well. Let's be honest, the courts sit between 10 and four in the, in the afternoon. So most people are at work. So, so it's really, you know, we get, we, you get the usual suspects that turn up, you know, they, they tend to be retired, usually retired gentlemen, um, of a certain kind who usually are sort of in their seventies who turn up with a notebook and they're very interested. And, and there was why well, I did a trial, uh, at Canterbury Crown Court, a fraud trial. And I, I did another trial there about four years ago and the same chap was there every day. So he, he just goes every day and watches whatever's on. <laughs> so you do get some, uh, and they're, and they're really knowledgeable, you know, they pick up a lot. They could probably have a go themselves, but, uh, but I think most people nowadays just don't have the time. Lives are too busy, you know, and, and, and particularly between um, 10 and 4, that's in the week. It's just not. So I'm, not, my, I'm a very big fan of actually televising trials. I think they should, they should televise them completely. Uh, I, I don't agree with the argument that it will somehow interfere with the process. I think people just get used to it. They get used to it in America where there's a lot of states that have televised criminal trials. And I think they should televise them because otherwise 
99.9% of the population will never get to see what happens. And, and because they just can't make it, they don't have the time, they don't have the, you know, maybe they live a long way from the nearest Crown Court centre. Um, and it's a shame. I think, it, I think people would be much more uh, kind of aware of the issues and much less willing to argue, as some of the people argue for, you know, let's just, this, the courts are all soft, the judges are soft, you know, the whole thing's, you know, bent in favour of the defence. All of these arguments that you hear, particularly in the right-wing press, if people would see it for real, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say those things. They just wouldn't, because it's not true. And, and, and nobody who works in it and been, in, been through trial after trial would say that the, that the judges are soft or that or, or the, in any way that the system is soft on criminals. It's just not. That's just not true. Uh, and I think if people saw it, they'd realise that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I actually occurred to me like that. And you've, li- you've led me down a route as well that I really wanted to speak to you about uh, just before we get into some really heavy subjects of the book. But the fact that you do represent such a diverse range of clients, as you said, you... You, you have represented people that you know uh, potentially, I mean, quotation marks are guilty. You mentioned the fact that, you know, you, you did a, a manslaughter case with the mother of the, the victim. Yeah, I mean, my client was found not guilty on the basis of self-defence. So, you know, this, this is the thing about cases. You, 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 there, is, there are always two sides to the case. And, you know, yes, uh, you know, you, you go into a case knowing that, some, that a man's been killed and that, that tragedy can't be re- reversed. Um, but ultimately, the law is there to decide whether someone is legally responsible for their death and criminally responsible for their death. And as it happened, the jury decided in fairly short order that my client had acted in self-defence. So, and that was, it came as a great distress, source of distress to, to the family of the deceased who wanted to see someone get punished for their son's death. Um, and, and, and the legal system involves some very, very difficult and high emotional subject matter. Um, and you just have to be able to kind of accept that that's part of the, the landscape, but do your job and just be, you know, be uh, dispassionate and professional, regardless of how tragic the circumstance. I mean, there's nothing more tragic, for example, than the murder of a child or the death of a child or the, or the, or the serial sexual abuse of a child. These are the sorts of subjects that we as criminal lawyers have to grapple with and deal with and remain professional and not allow ourselves to become uh, emotionally involved in the subject matter it's very hard sometimes but uh, but we have to that's definitely going to be my my pondering is is what it is must it be like to represent such a, a range of people that you know that have got various different levels of again using the word guilt is, is a shorthand that must be quite tricky for you to deal with but as you said you've got the criminal justice system and the fact that you've got to represent facts and I, I, I've never found it difficult. I, I've never found it difficult to grapple with representing people who have done terrible things because my responsibility is so crystal clear. It's just to act professionally within the law to the best of my ability to defend them in line with whatever their defence may be. And I don't make up their defence. It's not for me to, you know, I get, you know, of course, sometimes clients say to me, I've got an alibi. And you look into the alibi and you think this is a rubbish alibi. But ultimately, if they and you might tell them that um, and you might well say to a client, your alibi's rubbish. You know, it's your mum and your mum only came up with your alibi three weeks later. So it's rubbish. So, so we say things like that to our clients. But ultimately, if they say, I don't care, that's my that's my defence. Then it's not our job to pick and choose, you know, which clients we have. We are not allowed to do that. We have a rule against, you know, called the cab rank rule, which says we must take the clients as they come to us. And we're not allowed to say, oh, we don't like you. We're not going to represent you. So it's very simple. I think when your duty and your responsibilities are very clear, then I think it makes it easier. I think if you were in the position where you, where you had to exercise your own judgment about guilt, 
or your own judgment about the client's morality, that would be a much more difficult job. But we don't we specifically don't have to do that. And actually, we're specifically prohibited from doing that because it's not for us to judge those things. It's for the jury ultimately to make their judgment about guilt. And it's for the judge to make his judgment if someone's found guilty of this sentence. And therefore, the degree of culpability or blame on the individual. At no stage is it the defence lawyer's role to do that. So, so you know, once, if you go into this job, I mean, often that's one of the questions people ask is, you know, how do you do it? How do you defend these guilty people? And the answer is, you know, that's my job. And if I didn't want to do that, I wouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> so I'll be doing a different job. So anybody that would find that hard would find themselves um, changing career pretty quick, you know? And it's part something that you have to just get used to and grapple with and deal with. And, and, and we all do it. All of us who do this job over, all over the world, and it's not just in England, but there are defence lawyers in every, every country in the world, um, we, we acknowledge that we have a professional job to do, which doesn't... We don't, we don't say that our clients have done... You know, if, if, if my clients murdered someone, I, I, it's not, I'm not condoning what they've done by defending them. I don't, I don't, I don't, that's no part of my job to, 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 to make excuses for immoral or amoral behaviour. It's my job simply to execute a legal um, role on their behalf, and that's what I do. And I don't—I actually don't find it that hard. I don't grapple with that at all. Do you do you find that the the general public do take a fascination in your role, and that's potentially why you wrote the book Justice on Trial? Do you think that there are some questions that you needed to answer within I, this? I'll tell you why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I've spent all these years, twenty five, twenty six years now. Uh, working in a system that fundamentally is completely broken and doesn't do the job that it's supposed to do. And every and so maybe the first 10 years or so, I didn't really think about that. Maybe the 15 years, you just get on with your job. You just get your head down, you do your, a case, and then you finish it and you do another case. And you don't ask yourself any questions anymore. I, and, and eventually, it came to a point, maybe a year or two or three, three or, so, three or so years ago, where I thought, actually, what we're doing is the equivalent of working on a building site where all you do is dig a big hole and the next day you come back and fill it in again and you never ask yourself why you're doing that. You just take your money at the end of the month, you keep doing the same hole in and out and you never say, hold on a minute, what's the point of this? I'm working really hard and it's, my back's out and I'm, I'm doing this all day, I've got blisters on my hand and nothing's changed since the first day I did it. It's exactly the same every day. We just go back to where we were at the beginning. And, we, and, and that's what we're doing in criminal justice in England and many other countries, particularly America. In fact, it's worse than that. We're digging the hole, but never quite filling it back in again. It's just getting deeper and deeper and it's pointless. Um, we're, making, we're, we're creating a situation where, you know, generation after generation, more young people are becoming embroiled in the criminal justice system and then in the adult justice system and the prison population keeps growing and growing. The, the, you know, the rates of recidivism and, and, and repeat offending keep going up. The, 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 the impact, as you know, one of my main passions and one of the whole chapters in the book is around drug prohibition and we, and we don't, you know, as a society, we're not asking ourselves what's, what's the impact of that. And the truth is the impact is the creation of huge swathes of criminality that wouldn't happen without drug prohibition and tragic numbers of deaths, both of those who take drugs and who, who don't, who, who take drugs, which, which on the black market are not safe, but also of all of the dozens and dozens and dozens. And you see them on the papers every day of young men in particular, but just, but also young children and women who are dying in drug wars, gang wars and turf wars and shootings and knifings. And all of that is just because drugs are illegal. You know, you, you don't have those things happening in the tobacco or the alcohol market. 
because they're, they're licensed products and there is a supply chain which is kind of a legitimate supply chain there's no turf war over between one pub and another you know it doesn't work like that you don't go shooting the landlord of the next pub in the next town to try and take over his pub that just doesn't happen i mean it may have happened with the craze in the 60s but it doesn't happen now and 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 the reason is because those those businesses are licensed businesses and they can call on the police if there's trouble drug dealers can't call on anyone except someone to come and get a knife or a gun and go and kill someone and that's and that's the whole thing so so i wrote the book because we're doing all these things which are utterly destructive. We're locking too many people up. We are prohibiting and criminalizing drugs in a way that there's no justification for. And we're treating children as criminals from very young ages. And we're creating a lifetime of criminality. And the whole system is completely and utterly broken. And so I wrote the book because I thought, you know what, after all this time, if I don't if I don't kind of tell people that I work here, I'm in the middle of all this rubbish, I know it's a complete mess. I still have to do my job, but somebody who's in charge of things, someone at policy level, needs to do something about it. Because if otherwise, we'll just end up like America. And as you know, I wrote extensively in the book about the American city of incarceration, as I called it, which is two and a half million population um, and would be, I think, the fifth largest city in the country if it were actually a city. And you just think about two and a half million people in, a, in one country locked up every single day and most of them for many, many, many years, most of them will never live a law-abiding life. And yet they have off-the-scale levels of violent crime, murder, drug dealing and all the other serious crimes. So it's, it's madness. It's complete madness. And, and we, you know, as I say, we're edging our way that way ourselves. You know, um, Boris Johnson was arguing for, you know, we're going to build more prisons. OK, we'll just build more. We'll keep filling them up. Without, why? Why are you doing that? When other countries that don't use prison as much have much, much lower levels of crime and much more success in when someone does commit a crime of diverting them away from that and back into, you know, gainful employment and, and looking after their kids and, and, and all the stuff that people should be doing with their lives rather than being spending their time, you know, in a cell 23 hours a day and learning nothing except how to commit more crime. Because that's pretty much all you do learn in prison is how to be a criminal. So great, that's what we're doing. We're creating these universities of crime which just create more and more criminals. And if that's what we want, fine. If that's what people want, that's what the public want, at least well, if they read the book, they can say, OK, I get all of that, and maybe this he's got some good points, but I don't care. It will do me, lock them all up. Fine, I don't, people make informed choices. But if people think that locking criminals up or people who have broken the law is going to reduce crime, they're wrong. So, because that's just a complete, absolutely unarguable fact that locking more and more people up in prison in any country where it happens, and the more it happens, the more crime you get. So, fine, if people accept that, they want more crime, but it makes them feel better to have more people in prison, then, then so be it, vote for it. And that's what most people do vote for in England and, and in America. And they don't vote for it in other, perhaps more uh, countries that have a more civilised view of things, like the Scandinavian countries, like Spain as well, actually has a very sort of liberal view when it comes, not liberal, but a very um, progressive view when it comes to, for example, youth justice. And you don't treat children as criminals. Even in Scotland, they've started to get away from that, that, that model of criminalising children. And their, 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 their young offenders institutions are much more focused on education and rehabilitation. They don't even use, I visited one, um, uh, and I talk about it in the book, um, and they call them young people. They don't call them young offenders or young criminals or whatever they call them young people, because that's what they are. And, 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 you know, if you want them to be young people that come out and then go back into society, don't call them young offenders. 
Because you call someone a young offender, they'll offend. <laughs> you know, you call someone anything, they'll, 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 they'll tend to, to, to perform to the label that you've given them. So label them in a way and, and treat them in a way that you want them to behave, not the way in which you don't want them to behave. You don't want them to be young offenders, don't call them that, don't treat them like that. Treat them like what they are, which is children who need education, who need kind of help and support. Most of them, particularly young people, that's why it really kind of annoys me the way that we treat young people. The young people that are in the criminal justice system, and particularly those in the young offenders institutions, they are almost invariably the product of the care system, of abuse as children, of, of, of family environments where violence is rife, where even... I mean, I, I spoke to the governor of a young offenders institution in, in Scotland. She, I did an interview with her for my BBC series, and, and I talk about it in the book. You know, she, she, she talks about them having, having witnessed one, two or more violent deaths as children. You think, how many of us have witnessed a violent death? Like, you know, the, the odds of that are just so slim, except if you come from certain communities and backgrounds. And then after they've been through all that trauma as children, they might go out and, you know, I don't know, just, just nick something, or, you know, nick a car or... or, or, or and, and they're completely damaged individuals. And, you, you, you know, the minute you sort of say to them, OK, well, you're a criminal now, and we're going to treat you, you're just locking up these kids that are, that are massively damaged and abused. And you're, you're basically, you know, storing up trouble for them and for society by doing that. And you, you just, you know, but we carry on doing it. And it carries on having the same end result, which is that they'll come out at the age of 15, 16, 17, 18, and they'll go, go and commit a more serious crime, and they'll go into an adult prison for a bit. And they'll come out and commit more crimes, and that's the way. That's the way we seem happy to run the system. So, and, and as you said, the fact that that you are labelling people young offenders, yeah, that's that's a pre-nominative determination. It's going to happen that way if you're going to label people that way. And you, in the start of the book, you make this case of someone that was in quotation marks happy in prison because it's what they knew. Yeah, it's what they understood. Many are many are completely institutionalised, and that's what people don't understand. In some ways, the harsher the environment, and the, but and the more utterly soul-destroying and routine-based it is, the more that a certain type of individual will become completely institutionalised and actually won't be able to function in, with any degree of normality. And what you really need to do is the model that they've adopted, for example, in Norway, which I talk about in the book, which is to make the prison environment pretty much secure, and you you know you restricted liberty, and that's where the punishment comes in. But you make the environment normal, so they do go out to work, and they do have to cook their own food in a normal kitchen and live in a sort of what looks a bit like a shared house or an apartment, rather than completely taking them out of any normality. Sometimes for years on end, and the the, the man that you're talking about in in, in the book, um, uh, I think I called him Michael in the book. Um, he he was. Um, you know, he, he at the age in his fifties, and the idea of living in the outside world, to after thirty something years in prison, in and out of prison, he was just like, I don't, I'm, I'm happy in here. I've got everything I need. I know everyone. This is, this suits me. Now, when you're creating a prison system that completely institutionalizes someone for twenty or thirty years to make them incapable of ever functioning in the outside world, your you, your system's rubbish. It's pointless. It's not, you know, what's the point of this, the criminal justice system? To protect the public, reduce crime, and obviously to, as part of that, to rehabilitate those who do offend. We're not doing any of those things. We're doing the opposite of all three. So, again, if the public think that's good, the, 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 the idea that, that 
that, that many have, that we have somehow gone soft on crime, for example, that sentences have gone down. The truth is, and again, I make this point in the book, the truth is that sentences have gone up and up and up. They've got longer and longer and longer. People spend more and more time in prison for a range of crimes, but particularly things like drug crime, murder and violent crime and sex crimes. More and more time in prison in response to that clamour from the right-wing media or from certain, you know, obviously voters that have this idea, let's get tough, let's lock them up for longer. That's what we want. And alongside that, all of these categories of crime have have we we see more and more of it, and we've seen and you know you, you just as I said earlier you just have to see these terrible almost daily stories we were getting last year up until lockdown which has had some impact but not completely of young young people being killed on the streets and stabbing each other to death on the streets and they're not afraid of these increased sentences because they don't think they something going to happen to them they don't think they're going to get caught. So sentencing as a deterrent doesn't work. And sentencing by keeping people in prison for really long periods, that, that's exactly the wrong thing to do, unless you want them to keep coming back for the rest of their life. And, and, and again, as I say, the frustration to me is that people, even the clearest possible evidence, doesn't seem to overcome people's natural emotional reaction, which is, we just want to be tough. We make prisons horrible hellholes. You know, Pretty Patel was, you know, let's make them quake with fear at the thought of... You can't frighten these people into not committing crime because they're so damaged anyway. They're not, they're not frightened of the criminal justice system. They're more frightened of what happens on the streets than they are of the criminal justice system. And the more tough you make the criminal justice system, you more you, more you make them emotionally completely withdrawn from life, from, from society, and they're therefore incapable of functioning. So you're just kind of destroying, emotionally destroying people's lives. And, and, and it's, it's, it's tragic. So, you know, going back to your question a few minutes ago, I wrote the book in the hope that by taking these sort of extreme positions, and I actually don't think they're extreme, but they'll be seen as such, such as we should close all of the prisons as we, as we currently use, uh, operate them, and we should legalise all drugs, and we should stop treating any children as criminals. I mean, that's hardly an extreme position, because that's the position in a country like Luxembourg, which is, you know, a sort of advanced modern society, wealthy modern society. They don't criminalise any children. So it's not some crazy idea from, that no one would ever do. They're doing it in these countries. Many other countries, as I say in the book, don't criminalise young, young children, as young as 10 or 11, as we do. Um, so they're not crackers ideas, but they are, I'm, I'm, I'm call the chapters, I, I call the chapters, you know, as you know, they, 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 they are just why we should do this, why we should close all the prisons, why we should legalise drugs, and why we should not criminalise children. And, and ultimately, my kind of theme of the whole book, as you know, is why we shouldn't just use this binary analysis. You're either good, in which case, OK, you're fine, or you're bad, in which case we need to do terrible things to you and lock you away forever. Because when you start thinking and behaving like that, people will just respond to the label you put on them. As I said, if you label a, a young person bad from, a, from the beginning, you say you're evil, you've done evil things, and the judge shouts and sh says what terrible, you know, amoral person you are, you get what you, get what you put in. And that's what, if that's what you put into young people, that's what's coming out. So who knows? Maybe people will listen, Jason. Maybe there'll be a debate around it. Maybe some of the coverage around it will get some interest from those uh, in authority. And maybe now's the time because we've got no money. We've just spent it all on, on, on coronavirus. So we don't have billions of pounds for an ever-increasing prison building programme and a criminal justice system that fails. So maybe now's the time to say, OK, we need to actually try and save some money and actually reduce crime. And, and I'm giving this. There, there you go. Just take my book. 
and run with run with even half of it, you'll save yourself probably 50% of the criminal justice budget and half crime overnight, which wouldn't be bad, in my view. So, so there's two strings I want to pull on there. It's firstly, you referenced it just a moment ago that as we're having this discussion, it's been announced that new prisons are going to spring up. Uh, which is just again bizarre to someone like myself that's been in this vaguely in this sector for such a, a long time. That how can we have this conversation and not be having the conversation that we're having right now with your book? And the other aspect is that you mentioned it a moment ago about um, comparing populations in in the United States. So in New York, you've got eight point three million people. In LA, you've got three point one million people. And in your proposed city of incarceration as a concept, you know, or if you take all the prisoners of America and put them in one city, it'd be 2.3 million. And that would be about roughly about the fifth largest population as a state. How, how are we not having this conversation broadly well, do you know what? and internationally? It's very interesting that you, you, you ask me that question. Because I, 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 while I was travelling in the States for research for the book, I would quote that number to everybody I interviewed. And I'm talking federal judges. I'm talking about criminal appeals judges. I'm talking about practicing district attorneys and public defenders and people who work in criminal justice, yeah, and right on the front line of criminal justice. And I would say, you know, and and I'm sorry, I'm an English guy. I'm not trying to lecture them or tell them how to, you know, run their country. That's up to them. But I would would say to them, you know, what do you think about the fact that your rate of incarceration is the highest in the world and that you have nearly two and a half million people locked up every day. And, and I would say almost every one of them said, whoa, I never knew that. Like, I didn't realise it was 2.3 2. million. Like, and you think, well, that might answer your question. Because they don't think... Everyone's just looking at this bit that's right in front of them. And they're doing... They're processing people through. And, and, and I think I quote this, the, the judge in the book, uh, who, I, um, who I spoke to out there, criminal appeals judge, um, who said, I know it's all wrong. I know it doesn't make any sense. I know that everything that I do, sitting on the bench, every sentence I pass, every death death sentence I uphold or pass, or, you know, every time I I agree that a 19-year-old should go to prison for life uh, without parole for a drugs offence, I know that it's going to have a directly negative impact on outcomes. But no one's going to vote for me if I say that out loud. Because the public think that it's all good. The longer you lock people up, the better. And that's why progressively, year after year, prison population goes up. And there's other reasons in America. For example, there's a huge um, vested interest of private prison corporations and, and, and those who make a lot of money out of the current system and lobby very hard to keep it that way, uh, which is less so here, although it's increasingly a factor. Um, but, um, but, you know, if, the, if those who are actually working in fairly high-level or influential positions know that it's wrong, maybe don't quite realise how wrong it is because, because they don't look very internationally in America. They don't realise that, you know, when I explain to them that your rate of incarceration is, 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 is sort of way higher than ours in the UK, and they're like, oh, well, you know, and I'd say, yeah, but ours is the highest in Europe, and yours is like eight times higher than ours. And they're like, well, you know, and then and, and you look at some of the, you know, you, you're the comparators for the UK, you know, of countries like Norway and Iceland and various other, uh, well, any other country in Europe, as it happens, um, you know, they don't imprison anything like the rate we do and they don't have a crime wave and they don't have terrible problems with serious violence, serious crime and drug crime more than us because they have le- less of these problems, even though they use imprisonment much more sparingly. 
So, you know, why aren't people, why aren't people look, reading the evidence? I don't know. But hopefully, at least one or two might, might, might you know, as you, as you very kindly said at the beginning, hopefully the book's written in plain English so that you can see the statistics, you can see the evidence, you can, you can hear some first-hand examples, like you say, Michael and his 25, 30 years in and out, revolving door, just getting completely institutionalised and think, oh, hold on, is this really how I want to spend two million quid of my taxpayers' money is on keeping one person in and out of prison and the justice system for life? You know, more, more than it would cost to send them to Eton and Oxford, you know, and, and for, for no product, productive value other than that they go out and commit more and more crimes. I mean, it's just crackers. Um, and it's depressing because it's the, it's the one thing, it's the emperor's new clothes argument, you know? It's the one thing, it's so bloody obvious. When you just even look at any of the statistics, it's obvious that we're doing everything wrong. And yet everybody just that kind of broadly speaking, there's, an, there's a political will to accept the status quo because it does get votes. People vote for tough on crime politicians more than they do politicians who are more nuanced and have a much more evidence-based view. You can't, evidence is hard to communicate. And hopefully in the book, I've communicated it a bit, but it is hard to argue on evidence when you're up against a politician who says, Oh, it's all very well arguing to reduce sentences, but tell that to the mother who's, you know, just lost her son or tell that to the person who's just been burgled. They want justice. They want tough sentences. They don't want you to go soft on these people. Well, that's quite a compelling narrative. You know, it persuades people in a way that sometimes maybe the sorts of things I say, uh, you know, are more difficult to grapple with because you need to you need to ha understand evidence to accept my arguments, whereas you don't you just need emotion to accept the lock them up narrative. It's very easy. It just it's an emotional reaction. You know, my own dad is. Oh, you know, he doesn't believe anything I say. He doesn't. He doesn't agree with any of my arguments. He'd be quite happy that they all got the death penalty, probably. But because it's just an easy sell, it's a much easier sell. You know, I can't convince my own dad. So what chance have I got? <laughs> I think I have exactly those conversations as well. I've got people close to me as well yeah. that are very much that lock them up, string them up, you know, yeah, put them on the yard arm. And it's, I'll, it's pull, the I'll pull the lever, be... or I, you know, people yeah, say yeah. these things. I mean, I don't really believe most of them would, but uh, but they say these things, don't they? Uh, and it's and like you said, it's easy to have that because you've got emotion. This side of the debate needs facts and stats, which you have got in the book. Yeah, but you've also done a lot of fact finding as well on the ground. And yeah. I mean, the prison tours that you took, especially in Mobile, Alabama, yeah. it was horrific what you're describing. So can you give a, a little bit of an overview of what you saw in yeah, that prison? Yeah, do you know what? It's a very odd thing because because I it was the first time I've been to a prison in the US. I've been to many, many prisons in, in, in Britain, obviously, uh, as part of my job to go and visit clients and, 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 and also filming for, for television. Um, but going to an American prison is something else because the, the, the weird thing was, because I'd been introduced and, and given an introduction to, to, get, to get in there, so to speak, so everyone's very friendly. And you go to this kind of administration building, which is not actually part of the prison itself. It's just a, it's, it's a block right next door, um, but, but there's no prison. It's just people working there and stuff. And it could, you could, be, it could be any kind of office. It could be an office that was running you know, an Amazon warehouse or was running any kind of like business. It, it didn't feel like you were in an oppressive kind of prison environment and, the, and, and everyone had nice offices. And, and of course, because it was outside the walls of the prison, it was, there were no bars on the window. You know, it was, it was, I mean, you had to, if you had a gun, you had to hand your gun in to go in there and lots of people did. But, but, but then you go through and once you get into the actual prison so behind the big wall that, that kind of, um, that, that, that is round the entire prison perimeter, um, 
Even then, it's only when you get to the cell blocks that you realise that this is something pretty horrific because the corridors are spotlessly clean. And the reason for that is because you, the prisoners uh, are mostly kept locked up 23, 24 hours a day in the, in the cell blocks. So any excuse to get out, they will take. And of course, if they're on cleaning duty, that means they get to roam around all the corridors of the prison with the machines. And so, the, so they would volunteer, they would clean 24 hours a day if they could, because it just gets them out of the cell block. So, the, so everything was spotlessly clean outside of the, the, the cell blocks, which I describe, and in, in fact, there's a photograph in, in the book of the, of, of the cell blocks that I saw. But once you get, finally, because you go through, I went through the kitchens and you go through all these, and the health clinic and various other parts of it, which is all, you know, pretty well maintained, looked pretty good. But once you get to the cell blocks and you see these men and women, in fact, I saw the women's wing as well, but you saw the, you see them and they're just locked up in these, just what looked like a cave, they look like, I think I described it in zoo, but they, they look like something from a zoo, but, but, but miles more overcrowded than any zoo would be. You wouldn't put 27 orangutans in, a, in an enclosure that small. You'd, you'd have five. And yet there was 25, 30 men in, in a space that was meant for half the number, as I say in the book. And it's just, you just, it's just soul-destroying. You just think, what, what? You've got all this massive building. You've got these you know hundreds of staff and they're all kind of un they're depressed and miserable because they're, they're, they're no one wants to do the jobs no one applies for the jobs so they've so they're short of personnel they're always got budget problems they're always never got enough money to run the place and all you're doing is just keeping these people just caged in these cages why what's the point of it, it it's it's so miserable and particularly when you build in as i describe in the book the fact that um, that many of the men there are, have got serious mental health problems because they closed down the psychiatric hospitals in Alabama uh, some years ago. And, and the warden said, look, you know, where do you think all the seriously psychiatrically ill people are going to go if you close down psychiatric hospitals? They end up, of course, being arrested because they're wandering the streets or they commit minor crimes or something, or even serious crimes, potentially, if they're seriously psychotic. And, they, and so a quarter of the population or something like that of the prison are people with serious enduring psychiatric conditions. But they're housed in these same conditions as the people who have actually sound mind have committed, you know, serious crime. There's no distinction. So people with very serious psychoses and, and, and bipolar or, or paranoid schizophrenia and, and all these really nasty enduring conditions... That, that, that have such a negative impact on people, they're just locked up in these great, you know, like overcrowded kind of conditions, wandering around, sort of talking to themselves or knocking their heads against the wall. And you just think, well, it's like some sort of Victorian kind of um, institution, you know, for, for the psychiatrically ill, you know, like a, like a lunatic asylum almost, like literally, that's what it feels like. And, and, and it's, it's really quite shocking. And, and of course, that's just one small, well, not that small, but relatively large, I guess, county jail but one county jail of one county out of the whole of the thousands of counties in America. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, some of them are much smaller jails than that. But, but the fact is that there's, there's probably not a jail in America that, ha that hasn't got, you know, a significant number of very seriously ill people and they treat them as if they're animals and it's disgusting. And I think you, you highlight as well that suicide rates in prison in this country and the United States are just, you know, through the roof. Yeah, suicide and self-harm are basically, you talk about a pandemic, well, that, well you know, in, in any custodial environment, suicide and self-harm are, are, are pandemic levels. I mean, constant, 
unremitting suicides and suicide attempts and serious self-harm incidents in every custodial institution, probably in the, in, certainly in the US and the UK. Uh, I mean, other, other countries, as I say, maybe have a slightly more uh, progressive and, and humane approach to imprisoning and incarcerating people. But, but where, where you make it tough, and I talk about the young offenders institutions in the book and the fact that they are just horrific, that you're sending 16, 17-year-olds to places where they can get murdered or where they'll be so miserable that they'll commit suicide, you know, on a regular basis. How is that a mark of a civilised society that we allow that to prevail? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just not. Um, and, and, OK, you, you could just about, if you're of a certain persuasion, make the argument, well, tough, if the outcome was that you were actually reducing crime and making sure that there were fewer victims. But when you do all of that, you are, the system is so inherently cruel, is so inherently damaging and dangerous for those who are within the criminal justice system and the custodial system, and you're making crime worse, then there's something seriously wrong with, with the way in which we're running that system. As I say, you, if you've got, you got some positive from it, then you know I would disagree with it because I, I, I think it's amoral, frankly, to treat particularly young people in that way and expose them to such harm and risk when they're so damaged already, most of them, when they go in, as I've already said. But, you know, I kind of at least would respect an argument that said, well, yes, but we, we're protecting the public, so there's some good from it. There isn't. So there's no good from it because we're not protecting the public either. So, so you know, and, uh, as I say, if the public read the book or, 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 or engage with some of these arguments through, through your, your podcast or, or, or other media stuff, and, they, and they're still prepared to say, OK, well, I don't care about any of that. I still want to do it the same way then I guess there's a degree to which you say, well, the public get what the public choose, because that's what a democracy is all about. But at the moment, I just don't think people get that the way in which we do it actually causes more harm to the public, not, not to the criminal, because the criminals just end up being largely institutionalised, as I said, and kind of immune to it, really, even however harsh it is, that, you know, the human spirit just gets crushed, and people just end up kind of just shuffling along, accepting the way, the way things are. But, but the communities that are blighted by crime time and time again from people coming out of these institutions, that, you know, they're often inner city communities, sometimes those, you know, lower, lower socioeconomic kind of conditions and, and, and so on. They're the, they're the communities that are getting the most harmed by what we do. And so, you know, and often, a bit, a bit like Brexit, I suppose, it's often those communities that are not massively affected by something directly that have the strongest views about it. So, you know, the middle class communities in low crime areas are, the, are you know, are, say, are quite happy to vote for politicians who are very kind of like lock them up and everything, even though in those communities, crime isn't such a big issue. It's, it's crime affects people mostly in poorer areas in, on the streets, through antisocial behaviour, through drug related violence, through burglary and robbery and other crime. Most of those crimes are focused on hotspots in sort of urban in certain urban areas. So when you when you hear sort of you know the middle classes of uh, uh, with areas with very low crime rates say, oh yeah, we need to get really tough on these inner city youths. You know, I've got you know less time for that when you you literally have no experience of it. It's not even part of your life, but you can have strong opinions because you you know you have these instinctive emotional reactions against certain things. I, we just need to find some way at some point of allowing the evidence to influence policy rather than emotion and just pure electoral politics. But whether we'll ever do that, I don't know, because that's one of, you know, democracy is a great thing, isn't it? Until it creates perverse outcomes. 
Um, you know, Donald Trump's a good example. You know, sometimes democracy creates perverse outcomes. And, you, you know, you, 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 I, I guess the only thing you can do if you have a strong opinion about something and you have experience and you have the ability to communicate is to just to try to tilt the argument or try to get on the radar of those who actually have influence. And I try to do that through the, the media stuff that I do uh, and through some of the social media stuff that I do, that just trying to kind of engage and get some of these ideas out there. Even if people argue strongly back, as many do on social media, tell me that I'm, yeah, I've got no idea, I'm out of touch, I don't know how victims feel. Well, I can tell you I do, actually. I've, I've been, you know, harangued by... I, I, was, I was approached once by the mother... Sorry, the sister of a, of a young woman who, who had been killed by my client in a, in a horrific murder case many years ago. And, and the sister, you know, outside court says to me, you know, I, how can you do this? You know, he killed my sister. You know, you have to hear stuff like that. Of course, I'm aware of that. But that doesn't mean that you instinctively just do whatever the victims say they want, because it may be the thing that actually causes another victim that you don't need to have. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm really much more interested in preventing future victims than simply responding to cries for vengeance from those who have uh, suffered a crime, because vengeance very rarely has a productive outcome for anyone. And, and, you know, you, you, you will get much more out of a young person in the criminal justice system if you try and engage with their needs and their, the harm they've suffered and try to acknowledge that they need help than you will by just locking them up for 23, 24 hours a day. That's just a fact. I mean, it's not, it's not even really a debatable fact. Um, but there we go. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's, there's three points, because I want to do a comparison now to Norway, uh, because this is a very different prison system to what we've been talking yeah. about in America. But just before I do that, there's three really interesting points that you, you observed in Alabama. One is that, there are some people that engineered arrest just so that they can have access to a doctor, which again is just shocking. Two, even a doctor had a gun, which again is to, to the, our British eyes are just completely bizarre. And the other thing, which is just, again, just is something that just does make sense. 
but the TV kept order in that prison. Absolutely. That become and especially in the, when the sport's on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was quite frankly, it, it, so you're watching. So it goes back to my zoo analogy, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you keep the chimpanzees in the chimpanzee cage? Well, you give them, like, toys to play with and you give them, you know, like, think swings to swing on. Well, the equivalent of that in, in the Alabama prison system is the TV set on the wall, uh, sort of maybe 15, 20 feet up, and every face is, like, staring up at the TV. And if you switch it off because of some incident then they'll all go nuts and start fighting each other smashing the screen uh you know maybe even sort of harming and even killing each other so the tv is just like it's just a constant drip of kind of just something that just keeps them under control and 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 get and and, and you know distract focus so you know and, and and i imagine when the sports season's on as well they're gambling on what on the on you know on the on the sports and you know that's giving them a, it's a form of entertainment well it, i suppose there's an irony there isn't it because because the point i was making was that you're dehumanizing them by keeping them in conditions which are so uh, uh so completely different to what any kind of normal life would be on the outside but i suppose the one thing which is a normalization particularly in america is that they do watch a lot of tv and they watch a lot of sport on tv so who knows? Maybe because that is just a one thing that they've got the one thing in that whole cell block, which is a, which you would also have in real life, which is a TV. Nothing else in there would would you, you you wouldn't have metal tables, you know, that are screwed to the floor. You wouldn't have bars. You wouldn't have you know up and over cell cells. You wouldn't have uh, you know bunks in 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 cells in massively overcrowded conditions. But you would have a TV. So and you would watch the the, the you know the the football or the baseball or whatever. Um, so maybe it's just because that's that one kind of window of normality. Maybe that's the reason why it's so effective in uh, maintaining order. I don't I don't know. I mean, you'd have to be a, a psychologist, I guess, to understand that. But I do know they say, look, if we have to turn it off, they 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 really go nuts. Which is why all these very thick kind of perspex kind of. Um, uh, observation uh, windows that are on the front of each of the blocks, as you can see in the book, why they're all smashed to bits. They've all got like dents in them, chips in them, cracks in them, because they just go nuts and start smashing them when, when, when either when it kicks off generally or when they get the TV turned on. Uh, just, so. just feels so Orwellian, doesn't it, to have a TV screen overseas, all of this. But you, you use the example of Norway as the as the progressive model. Uh, so can you give a, a, a brief overview of what's happening in that? Yeah, country? so the Norwegian system, first of all, they use prison much more sparingly than us, so their rate of incarceration is much lower. Um, but their prisons are founded on an entirely rehabilitative ethos. So the whole point of the prison system is to make prison for as short a time as possible and to make it as normal and uh, uh, to operate in the way that uh, you, you would operate as closely as possible to real life. So that means that they don't have many of the, they don't have bars, they don't have, they don't have sort of like big clanging doors, they have just normal rooms uh, that have like kitchens that people can cook for themselves and they even have, um, I think I mentioned in the book, but they even have um, a kind of like cottages and things where people can have if they behave themselves, their family can come and stay for a day or two. They can interact in a natural setting with their kids rather than in a weird visiting room where everything's monitored by cameras and it's all very kind of uh, the way that our visiting rooms are, which are very, I mean, that must be sold. I mean, the, the, the impact that visiting someone, for a child to visit their father or mother in prison in our country, the psychological damage done to those children by those visiting conditions must be extraordinary. But the, but the Norwegian system, as I say, is to try to make the entire experience of custody as normal as possible within the constraints that your liberty is being taken away. 
Uh, and, you know, and, and, and that must make sense because the, the hardest thing for a prisoner to cope with is not the first day of their sentence, actually. Maybe sometimes that's pretty tough, but it depends how many times they've been in before. Most have been in several times by that stage. But the hardest thing is the first day back on the street because it's, they've suddenly come out of what something which was completely different onto the street where they're responsible for themselves, they've got to do everything for themselves and they just don't have the coping skills, they maybe don't have the money, they don't have a job, they don't know where to live. Whereas the Norwegian system is about, actually that first day back out again won't be necessarily that different to the day before and therefore it's not such a shock to the system, it doesn't immediately drive them necessarily back to uh, to, to drugs or, or, or to a criminal gang or a criminal lifestyle in the way that we do, because we just give our, our people come out of prison, it's a shock to the system. Their only coping strategy in many cases is to go back to the life they knew before they went into prison, which was a, a dysfunctional life of crime and or drugs or, you know, uh, you know other forms of dysfunctional behaviour. Uh, so, so, yeah, the Norwegian system is a really good model. And the way I see it is that, and I, the, 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 I advocate in the book for let's go even further, let's make prisons actually places of normality where people can live in conditions that are, I'm obviously not going to put them in luxury apartments, you know, on Park Lane, but you, but you, make, you make the environment as natural as possible and as close as possible to real life. So they should be doing their own cooking, they should be doing their own washing, they should be independent in all of these things, because if they're not, then how the hell do you expect them to be when they come out? You know, they're not going to know how to do all these life. They won't have any of these life skills that, that everybody else has to have to function and go to work and so on. So, um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, the Norwegian system, it seems to me, is, is, is a, a really good example of good practice under the current model. But I think you could go even further, as I say in the book, and you could just, and that's why I, the chapter's called Why We Should Close All the Prisons, because we should close all of the prisons in the form that they are now and rebuild in a different way, but for a much smaller number. So you, yes, you'd spend a bit more per prisoner, but you'd only have, in my model, you'd only have a third the number of prisoners. So actually overall, you'd halve the budget, and you, but you would have a much smaller number. And the outcomes, and the Norwegian outcome in terms of recidivism, um, I think it runs at 20% as compared to our 75, 80%, depending on the nature of the offender, well, it speaks for itself that you normalise people and, strangely enough, their behaviour becomes more normalised when they get out of prison. But if you, if you make them live in a cell block and you make them live in a cell and you, they have no responsibility and they have, they have, they're watched and everything, every move they make is controlled, then they will not function normally when they get out. I suppose that's what it boils down to when trying to convince people is the taxpayer, how much it's going to cost and the effectiveness of it. And that's that I think I need to reiterate 20% recidivism in Norway, as opposed to 75, 80% in this country, in the US. Surely that says it all, doesn't it? Well, it, 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 it does. It, I think for me, it does. Uh, I mean, recidivism is not the only part of criminal justice, but it's a massively important one. It's a bit like the spread of a virus, isn't it? If you think about it, you know, if, if you reduce the kind of reinfection rate, i.e. the re-offending rate in this case, then you, over time, reduce crime. But if the higher and higher the re-offending rate gets, you just exponentially increase the amount of criminals and crime and the prison population grows. As we've seen in a generation, it's doubled to, from about 40,000 to about 80,000. Now that, to me, is telling you that you are getting things wrong. You should, if you're succeeding 
in your mission objective of reducing crime and reducing the number of criminals, you should have a shrinking prison population, not an increasing one. An increasing prison population is a sign that your policy has failed, just as an increasing number of virus sufferers is, is, is evidence that your containment of, virus, of a virus has failed. So you, you've got to get the R number, as it would be in virus, you've got to get that number down and you've got to get the prison population shrinking. And I, I need to kind of end on one of the big things that you advocate is we need to reform our drug laws. Um, so at what point did you personally come to that conclusion and start having that conversation with yourself? Uh, in terms of a serious kind of view that, that, that it was a possibility that, you, that there might be some sort of significant drug law reform, probably only over the last two or three years, as we've seen uh, liberalisation of drug laws in a number of countries, many of them in ways that I disagree with. For example, the US um, model of uh, decriminalising cannabis uh, has, has been, I think, a really big mistake because it's just been a corporate kind of money-making uh, policy. It's not really had any eye on the bigger picture and the effect, the social effect and social impact of the policy. Uh, whereas if you look at the Swiss kind of model around heroin treatment, for example, um, and to a degree their kind of tolerant attitude to low-level drug dealing uh, on street dealing, which I describe in the book as well, um, you know, the, 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 that's a kind of, that's and Portugal's decriminalisation model, which again, is, is, it's, it's often cited as a big, big positive, and it, and it is in the sense of, the, the Portuguese experience has been a reduction in drug-related crime and, and, and improving health amongst uh, drug users because they can access services and different things much more easily. Um, but actually, even that, it just doesn't, it doesn't deal with one of the fundamental issues, which is the, the, the influence of criminal gangs in the supply chain, which is where all the violence comes from, and where all of the danger comes from in the sense of overdose because drugs are not professionally uh, manufactured. Uh, to, to quality standards. I think, I, I can't remember if it's specifically in the book, but I, I think it might be in the book, actually, where I make the point that, you know, you can't buy a bloody, you know, I don't know, you can't buy a, a kid's toy without it being somehow massively kind of subject to 57 different quality standards and testing and, and all of this. You can't buy, you probably can't buy, a, you know, a bed or a couch that hasn't got 57 different regulations to, to, of safety standards. But every drug user takes the risk of instant death with no license, no, no regulation, no control, no, no, no health information. And, we, and we, we accept that as being normal and acceptable. And, and, and so when exactly I came to the view that, that there might be a... I mean, I came to the view many, many years ago that I'm involved in these big drugs cases and people getting 20, 25, 30-year sentences in some of these cases. And I've always thought that was a complete waste of time a massively expensive waste of time. For the simple reason, there's always another dealer. You can lock up a thousand dealers. Sometimes they, and we had an operation recently, you could lock up a hundred, 200, 500 dealers. You go and lock up every street dealer in England who's operating on the streets today. And by tomorrow, the supply chain will be back. So it's not working again. And the emperor's got no clothes. The war on drugs isn't a war on drugs. It's a war on drug users and it's a war on the public and it's failed. And you, you went to Switzerland to, to have a look what was going on there. And you, I believe you went and visited a safe injection facility. Um, so I did. I, well, I, I visited a safe injection facility, so-called consumption room, 
uh, or some call them shooting galleries, but they're not, you know, that's a slightly pejorative way of, of dealing with it. But I also went to the heroin assisted treatment program itself, which is where they dispense heroin to, um, to, to users um, in its pharmaceutical form. So the purest, safest form of heroin that there is. Um, but the, yes, I went to the consumption room where people bring their own drugs. That's a slightly different project um, because they have to buy their drugs on the streets. But but at least when they go and take their drugs, there are medical personnel, there are clean needles, there are safe sterile injection um, kind of stations that they can use to, to you know, with, with you know, bacterial spray and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, you would want if you were injecting anything ever. Um, uh, and so, and, and the people who worked there were deeply humane. They, were, they had access to HIV testing, to um, hepatitis testing, to, you know, uh, counselling and drug services if they wanted them. Um, and it was, it, the, compared to the shuffling, you know, of the drug addicts that you see on the streets of London or Manchester or, or, or other smaller towns even in, in England, uh, they, they were they were treated with humanity, and the people certainly seemed on at face value, and certainly on the evidence, were in much better health. So they had much lower levels of overdose, but also much lower levels of other related conditions that caused by infections or other things that come about with with using unclean um, injection works. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, you know, every country is different. There are different societies, different economic models, but the truth of it is that that a, that a humane and welfare-based approach, a medical approach to, uh, you know, um, you know, and a harm reduction approach, which is the core of the Swiss kind of model, um, without being wedded to criminal justice as part of the process, is definitely far more successful in on every measure. So, say, reduce. I mean, in Switzerland, they have very uh, limited, uh, you know, they have drug suppliers. But they tend to operate fairly transparently because, you know, unless they start infringing on people's lives and, and, and causing trouble in communities, they tend to be left to their own devices. So it's in their interests not for that not to happen. And I think I mentioned in the book that, you know, the drug dealers go to the town meeting. And if someone says, you know, oh, there's a dealer, he's been hanging around and he's bothering my kids on their way into the flats. The, deal, the, 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 the top level dealers who go to the meeting say, well, we'll sort that out. And it stops. Because they don't want that. The last thing the dealers want is to upset the local residents because they know that's the one thing in Switzerland that's going to make sure that you get the police on, on, on some action taken. So they keep the whole thing off the streets and, 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 and they certainly don't have violence and they don't have gang violence and they, they have a civilised system. But does it go far enough? No, it doesn't. It's just like the Norwegian prison system, in my view, is, is great, but it's only halfway there. The Swiss model, which is very pragmatic and it's based around we turn a blind eye rather than actually have this as a positive policy in many cases. It's halfway there, maybe a third of the way there, but we could do much better. And, and, and I, again, my view is a straightforward one. And I, I quote a woman called Do uh, Barbara Brewer, a doctor, a, a psychiatrist who works in addictions out there and has done for 30 odd years. Amazing woman. I mean, just just vast experience. And she was just, when I said the subject of prohibition, she was just like, it's just madness. Complete madness. And we just need to legalise and licence the lot. And one of the things I loved that she said was, and I do quote this in the book, was she said, look, there's no one stopping you sitting on your couch eating French fries and ketchup until you explode. But we've got criminal laws against you using steroids to keep fit. Even though actually you're much fitter and better off if you take the steroids and do the exercise than you are sitting on the couch eating, eating French fries and ketchup all day. But, we, but one's, one's a criminal act and the other one is perfectly acceptable, even though it's going to kill you. And so she just, she just rightly is, is just saying, well, how can you have these completely 
perverse moral standards that are different for one activity that could eat yourself to death or even drink yourself to death but you can't take steroids or if you want to take ecstasy once a month on a night out and she said that's not going to kill you and it's not going to do you a much serious harm and you know if it does well how is that any worse a choice than the french fry example or 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 or, or, or say drinking a liter of whiskey a day uh, which you're allowed to do by law you know and, and her view was it's just nuts you just you the only way you make a real difference and i agree with her and, and you know but, but when it comes from someone with that amount of experience of dealing with addiction and dealing with with the the consequences of drugs day in day out then you've got to listen but i agree 100 percent. it's the only way you've got you li- license legalize and regulate all the drugs and you yes you place obstacles to you know uh, uh, to the journey but not sufficient obstacles that you end up with a continuing black market supply chain, which is the one, the thing that really is one of the most damaging things in our society is the black market supply chain for drugs. And we, and we can even just reduce it by half, we would improve our society by um, a, a large measure, in my opinion. Uh, and one of the things that the black market does is bring new blood into it. And there's a big chapter in your book about youth justice and how, as, as we've mentioned before, we shouldn't have the term young offender. There should be no such thing as child criminals. And there's a, there's a very impactful um, little bit from the Howard League, which is that someone from a child's home, a children's home, is 15 times more likely to become a criminal. And that in itself surely indicates that this is a broader subject. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's our failure because, because if you think about it, children in the care system are under our care, all of us as, as taxpayers and as, as, as members of society who, who elect politicians to create care systems on our behalf. We, we're responsible for those children. And, you know, I, I give a talk about Gethin Jones, who I interviewed for the book, who's, who, who, who was, uh, you know, in and out of the system and is now kind of rehabilitated and, and, and works kind of in, in, in the kind of rehabilitation kind of environment. But, but you know, the it, 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 point I make in the book is don't be surprised if, you, if we as a society fail children and if we treat them like criminals from a very young age and we, we essentially pile abuse on abuse because they've already, many of them, been abused or ser- seriously damaged, then they're in the care system and often they suffer more uh, emotional or other damage, uh, even physical damage and, of course, abuse over the years. And then we and then we we carry on with that abuse, you know. And so and who, who, we're responsible for that. And I, I, I'm, you know, we're all responsible for that. And and and, you know, no no one can say, well, I absolve myself and I just blame that individual child because they didn't sort themselves out. Those statistics, the fifteen times more likely, is not because they are fifteen times more evil than a child who had the good fortune to have two parents and all the other bits and pieces that go with a sort of happy fulfilled childhood where you have everything you could possibly need and all your emotional and physical needs taken care of they're 15 times more likely to offend because we have made them that way and we we as a society are responsible for for, for trying to avoid that happening in the future and treating them with with the uh the respect for their childhoods that they that they deserve just as any as we would expect for our own children basically this is one of those conversations i could i, I could go for two three hours but the full title of your book is Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. So to, f- to finish off our discussion, how far along do you think we are on getting this message across to politicians and the voting public? And is there a danger that it's going to get worse before it gets better? I think it will get worse and it may never get better. I mean, this is the, this is the sad thing. I wrote the book in the hope that maybe someone's listening, maybe we get some debate going. 
But do I really think that that political dynamic of, of you know, the right wing in particular and, and you know, the, the fear on the left or the more progressive uh, political wings of being seen to be soft on crime is so great uh, that they many left-wing politicians over the years have basically spouted the same stuff and not necessarily been prepared to engage. And, you know, yes, you do get a degree of the sort of more liberal uh, kind of uh, policymakers and politicians that are are prepared to engage, but they don't win elections. So, you know, um, where do I end up with it in terms of my overall sort of view of where things are likely to end up in the future? I think we are sadly more likely to drift towards the American model than we are the Norwegian one. That, that's, that's the sad fact. But who knows? There are politicians who are interested in this. There are many who acknowledge that the evidence is clear. But are you going to tell Boris Johnson that while he's prime minister, that he's going to start emptying the prisons instead of building new ones? It doesn't, doesn't look like it, does it? And could the, the taxpayer play a part in it? The fact that if... This isn't cost effective, which we both know isn't. Well, I hope so. And it it just requires more opinion formers, more media outlets, uh, particularly on the right, uh, to be prepared to. If you can engage the right wing press with the economic argument that that we're wasting billions of taxpayers' money to create more criminals, if if that narrative can somehow get traction with the right wing media, we might get somewhere. But just preaching to the converted in, uh, you know, the Guardian and the more sort of liberal media. Sadly, you know, the people who, who, who are of the, roughly the view that we should be more progressive and look for reform, they're already kind of, they're, they're already there, aren't they? You've got to persuade a chunk of right-wing opinion to, that, that will then start to influence voters on the, on who, who are, whose tendency perhaps historically has been, let's go for the tough-on-crime politician, let's go for the one that's going to promise to increase sentences and... and, and crack down on criminals that that kind of voter has got to some of them at least have got to be persuaded that they are wasting their taxes and and actually making it more likely that they're going to get robbed and more likely that their kids are going to get murdered or die of a drug overdose um if you can persuade them of those fairly stark facts or at least a number of them then you start to tilt tilt the dial possibly um but that's the reality of any election isn't it that you have to persuade that sort of center-right voter or rights, you know, maybe slightly even right-wing vote, you have to persuade them to vote for you. And that's how Tony Blair succeeded as a Labour politician, by getting what would historically have been Tory voters to vote for him. And, you know, and, and, and that's going to be, remain the, the electoral demographic d- dynamic until time ends, because you can't win elections without getting some centre-right support. And so much of that centre-right support is instinctively pro you know, lock them up policies and pro-prison and pro-heavy sentences. So y- y- the, if we can get that debate going, we can, we can persuade. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm doing an opinion piece for The Express, for example, in, next week, where, you know, The Express is not necessarily a paper that you think is naturally sits with, with, with the arguments that I'm making, but they're prepared to have an opinion piece to try and challenge their readers. And their readers might, thousands of them will no doubt send in comments saying that I'm crazy and that I should probably be locked up myself. But um, but you never know. Maybe some of them will listen because because the evidence is there. So uh, we'll see. And if I can persuade one express reader not to not to vote for more prisons, then that then maybe that was worth doing the whole thing. I don't know. I know I know I kept saying that I was going to wrap up, but one one final last point is that you said that you fear that we could err towards the American prison system, and the fact that we've been talking about the taxpayer. 
unfortunately the the american system does profit some people you know it's it's, it's, it's called the 500 billion dollar industry yeah it's a massive industry yeah. do you think there's a danger that with the increasing tendrils of commercialism within our criminal justice system that we'll just blindly go that way I, I think so. I mean, you're right that we've got private prisons. We've got uh, we've got private suppliers and contractors supplying lots of services into the prison system. They're large corporations in 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 many cases. There is therefore a vested interest. They they will kind of give incentives to get contracts signed, but they're often long term contracts that end up being quite you know um, expensive for the taxpayer in the long run. Um, I, for my part, don't really see why we have private corporations involved in the prison system unless their only financial incentive is to empty the prisons out and to reduce recidivism and to and to create increased outcomes in terms of employment after release and so on so if you set the targets for private organizations with what you actually want decreased recidivism employment and lower crime overall from the population that, that are processed by that corporation I can just about get it, but it. But where you don't do that, and you just you you create a contract that incentivizes them to maximise the number of people they keep in the institution because they get paid per prisoner or they make more money depending on the population goes up, they make more money. If that's the way that you do it, then again, hardly surprising. A private corporation, and I'm not blaming them for it because the government's chosen or successive governments have chosen to engage these private corporations. But private corporations will maximise profit. And if that means more prisoners for longer, then that's the, that's the direction of travel that they're likely to go. So, um, yes, maybe there's a room for pr- private sector involvement in the criminal justice system, but it should only be to incentivise good outcomes, the things that we actually want, and overall to make fewer victims and less crime, which is what my whole book's about. My whole book's not about being soft on criminals, it's about reducing the amount of crime. Which is exactly the same thing the right, the right and the lock them up lobby claim to be arguing for, but they just, they, they just don't know how to do it. And, I, and hopefully I do. I believe I do. So one final quick point is that I always believe that if you get something that, that, that promotes your way of thinking, which, which your book unequivocally does for me, lend it buy it for someone gift it to someone yeah. so I'd rather, from your I'd position rather than their own copy to be honest Jason. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so for your position just to quickly or, wrap or take up. it out of the library they should they should be in libraries and, and and of course there's the audio book as well which is uh, which is going to be available next week and the kindle edition and it's available across all the different platforms uh you know all the different online retailers it's obviously it's on amazon but it's on all the others the waterstones and all every other wh smith so uh, any anybody who wants to order it who doesn't like Amazon, you can order it from my or, you, or yeah, even better, go and buy it from your local bookshop because I think lots of them are, ca- are going to take it as well. So uh, that's that's support the local, the high street in difficult times, um, you know, and, uh, and 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 spread the word. Brilliant. And also, what's your uh, TV programs? Because we can still get those on catch up. You can watch my series on BBC uh, iPlayer, which is called Crime, Are We Tough Enough? Uh, Which I make many of the same arguments in the book uh, about reducing prison population and drug... uh, drug reform. So that was on BBC One back in uh, January, February time, um, five-part series. Uh, and that's, as you say, it's on iPlayer, so BBC iPlayer. And I think that's going to be on iPlayer until the, until well, it's on for 12 months altogether, so the rest of this year. So any, anyone wants to catch up and watch that, um, ha- have a look. And hopefully, moving forward, uh, I'm looking to do a series of the book.
um, wow. and, and, and hopefully be able to do that to a, to, to, to a large audience and make some of these points on, on television. Uh, but in the meantime, I really hope everyone will have a good read and, uh, and, and get, get in touch with me on social media, you know, and, and if you agree with me, great. If you don't, then equally, I'd, I'd rather we were talking about this stuff than not. So I'd rather people were arguing against me. Let's, let's ventilate this subject. Let's at least be talking about criminal justice as a real issue that needs to be looked at and needs to be reformed rather than just accepting the status quo and gradually drifting towards the American model and city of incarceration of our own incarceration of our own. That would be the utter tragedy if we ended up with 100, 200, 250,000 in prison in this country. Our society would be deeply, deeply wounded by that. And I hope it doesn't happen. Well, Chris Dorr, QC, thank you so much. That's perfect conversation. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Jason. Thanks for that. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, I hope you found that every bit as fascinating as what I did. Chris Dorr, I could speak to him for hours and hours and hopefully we'll get him back at some point as well. So thank you so much, Chris. Make sure you do get the book, lend it to someone, buy it for someone. Justice on Trial, Radical Solutions for a System at Breaking Point. And also share this podcast. Share it with people that don't necessarily agree with us and understand the issues. That really helps. And while we're on thank yous, thank you to everybody at Leap UK. If you want to follow our work, please do at UK Leap on Twitter and Instagram and UKLeap.org on Facebook and our website. Thank you to Tristan, John and Nikki, the producers of the show. Thank you to John Harris for all you do. Thank you to everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network, to Scroobius Pitt for having us, Johnny Borrell for the theme tune, and you for listening and sharing and subscribing, because we can't impress upon you enough how much that helps. So on that note, let's queue up for the next episode. Make sure you do buy Chris's book. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.